Blog Talk Radio. Hi and welcome to The Art of Film Funding. I'm your co-host, Claire Papan, along with Carol Dean, author of the best-selling book, The Art of Film Funding. Carol is also the founder and president of From the Heart Productions and the host of this show. Jackie Frost is currently a full professor in the Department of Cinema and Television Arts at California State University, Fullerton, where the past 20 years she's taught cinematography, documentary production, advanced motion picture production, the language of film, and many other film production courses. She's been a producer and cinematographer for over 30 years and was recently the cinematographer on Whispering Cave and the upcoming documentary, Anna Mendieta, Rebel by Nature. Her current book this year of 2021, Conversations with Contemporary Cinematographers, The Eye Behind the Lens, is published by Rutledge and will be released later this month. Jackie is also the author of the completely updated second edition of Cinematography for Directors. And Carol, I understand that Cinematography for Directors is published by your publisher, Michael Weesey Production. Oh, right, Claire. Michael is a lovely person, and he has the best books on film production for filmmakers. So thank you, Jackie, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, we're going to have a lot of fun. Now, your book is brilliant. Uh, as the second edition, uh, it just has so many pictures and explains a lot, particularly when you get into the color palette and the film and the videotape shots. It's fabulous. So what we want to cover today is the director and cinematographer, creative mm-hmm. collaborators, and the cinematographer and the script the color palette of the film, and the canvas. Wow, so that's a lot, <laughs> but I yeah. think we can do it. So now okay. you say in Chapter 1 that the director's vision uh, is, the director is a visionary who takes the cast and crew on their creative journey towards the completion of a film. And the relationship between a director and cinematographer has been compared to a marriage there is a very close bond based on trust and mutual respect, although there can, of course, be disagreements from time to time. Communication is the key in this relationship. So I know this is a long list, but let's get started with what does a cinematographer want from a director? Because in your book, you ask a lot of great cinematographers this very question, and I like what Roger Deakins and Ellen Curris answered. So please share that. Oh, sure. Um, yes, it's wonderful to have had the opportunity to speak with all these cinematographers, first of all. Um, it was like sitting down and having my own private master class tutorial each time I spoke to them. But what Roger Deakins said about uh, working with directors is, I like a director with clarity of vision. With Joel and Ethan Cohen, obviously I know them very well. It's been a long-time relationship. It's a happy working relationship. I like their focus. I like the low-key nature in which they approach a project. It's very matter-of-fact. There are no egos on the set. 
everybody's doing their best to make that particular picture as good as it can be. So that's coming from the master, Roger Deakins. Um, Ellen Kouras said, I could list a number of different things, from how unique their perspective is to what they want to say and how they want to say it. But being prepared is key for me, because when a director's not prepared, it means they haven't really thought about what they want to do or say with the film. Well, tell us, what so, does that mean, being prepared? What does that mean to being, a cinematographer? Well, you know, cinematographers see themselves and they like to be collaborators with a director. It's their job, really, to extract um, the interpretation visually of the script from the director's mind. So, um, you know, that's why they use visual references and all these other things in pre-production to try and get on the same page so that when they do come to the set to begin shooting, that the director knows, the cinematographer knows what direction the director is going in. So to be prepared is ultimately to have a vision, to know in your mind as a director how you see this film unfolding, your interpretation of the script. And it's your job as a director to elicit the right performances from the actors, but it's the cinematographer's job to create a visual language and a visual interpretation of the story. So being prepared is definitely um, a key thing for cinematographers. Right. I've read that Scorsese, I'm sure others do too, but Scorsese for sure talked to his uh, cameraman with the film names. He would say, uh, I want the lighting and, uh, and I want the background to look like uh, Reds, uh, the film Warren Beatty made, or I want mm-hmm. this to look like uh, t- Taxi Driver, same same look. And um, and people have, you know, if you're in our industry, you're, you're highly visual, right? Don't you think? That's I would think so, dominant. <laughs> so, so they're carrying, we're all carrying these images in our minds, and, and particularly with cinematographers. I guess you all just seem to record scenes that you... Uh, like or that come across really well and you're able to bring that scene back up in your mind right on the set yeah and it's you know it even goes beyond it goes beyond films because in the preparation in fact um, if you want a little story um, Mm -hmm. when Matthew Labatique was working with Spike Lee um, uh, Spike Lee would basically rent out a theater and he would get prints of films and he would project them, and, you know, and he'd kind of elbow Maddie every now and then, something like that. What do you think? Something like that. <laughs> and they're watching, like, French Connection and all these different films, you know, maybe from the 70s or whatever, to just get a sense of maybe a visual style and a visual look. Um, and that's cinematographers love that. They have the opportunity um, to do something like that. And Marty Scorsese likes to, to screen films as well. He's currently working with Rodrigo Prieto, who I've also spoken to several times. And, um, you know, it's like having a combination of a breadth of film knowledge and history, you know, knowing genres, uh-huh. understanding films. But it also combines with a knowledge of um, maybe still photography, of fine arts. It's more than just films that they use to kind of create uh, the visual maybe uh, reference that they're trying to assimilate for a particular film. So, it's, you, you know, know, it's watching films is, going to museums. That is so important. I can tell you the names of films 
where I've been just awestruck that the scene is like a still photo, an, an incredible still photo. But if you look off in the distance, you'll see a little car moving across the scene. Uh, but you, you get this wide look at something, uh, and you also get these magnificent uh, visuals that the, that the cinematographers give us. I think it's incredible mm-hmm. how they can do so much with the camera. A camera and lighting and the correct focal length. Um, but it's like, like even if you go all the way back to The Grapes of Wrath that was photographed by Greg Tolan back in 1940. I mean, uh-huh. they used Dorothea Lange photographs as references. And if you were to look at a Dorothea Lange photograph right beside a still from Grapes of Wrath, you would think they were both the same still photograph. It's wow. amazing. You take Road to Perdition that was photographed by Conrad Hall for Sam Mendes, and Sam Mendes used the artist Edward Hopper as a reference, in particular uh, the, the painting New York Movie. And you look at Road to Perdition, and you put it next to a, an Edward Hopper painting, and it looks painterly. You know what I mean? The still of the film can look as painterly as the painting itself, because direct references like that can be quite direct. Um, I remember also I spoke to one of my favorite cinematographers. I was so lucky to get him because he's usually in Australia, John Seale. And John Seale worked with Anthony Minghella and he worked with um, uh, Peter Weir. And, you know, it's like he was saying how unwitnessed they went to a museum and looked at Vermeer paintings. And uh, Peter told him, I just want the, the light to come in from the left like that. So John and his Australian accent said, I could do that. So he just, you look at the stills, and again, you've got the, you know, the light coming in from the Vermeer source window, um, hitting Harrison Ford right there on the shoulder. (laughs) And, you know, it is amazing that you can see the use of these references, you know, because paintings Mm -hmm. were, in their time period, you know, kind of their own stories, their own movies, you know, in and of themselves in one image. So having that kind of knowledge, and and there are a a series of specific painters that seem to be a go-to for cinematographers, and um, because of their cinematic styles or their Mm -hmm. lighting, you Mm -hmm. know, so if you're talking about something that's more um, low-key, you know, dark, chiaroscuro type, then, you know, the go-to is Caravaggio, uh, because of the high contrast in his images in his paintings, or the go-to is uh, Georges de la Tour, again, for the candlelight low-key source, or, of course, Rembrandt. Rembrandt's on everybody's list. Or yes. Kind of, um, then you've got Edward Hopper, you know, a very, very filmic kind of painter, and, and maybe even Andrew Wyatt, you know, for more realistic stuff. And then you have still photographers that are good references as well, like Nan Golden. Um, for specific feel for the 70s type feel, you know, that gritty kind of feel. So there's a lot of, you know, William Eggleston. Um, there's a lot of photographers that are also really direct references because it's coming from painting, getting a little closer to what film is, still image, you know, you're using a lens and focal length and f-stops and exposure and then taking it into motion and motion pictures. Oh, thank so. you so much. That is exactly what we need to hear where the references come from. This is great. Uh, So basically, um, a director can find the references in films 
and sit down and screen them with the cinematographer. These days, you could download them. Uh, and then now they have on Netflix where you can communicate. You don't even have to leave your house. And two Not people can watch that. this thing. Yes. <laughs> this is wonderful. Yeah, because, you know, okay. I mean, it's that's, the that's best the way, way, I think. Sure. You know, somebody could be in New York, somebody's in Los Angeles, and you're communicating. What do you think about that? Yeah, yeah, I got that reference. Okay. What else do you want? Okay, let's take a look. You know, it's, it's really, it's, it's a conversation. It's, it's communicating and really getting these images in your mind so that you know how to create them. You know, on the set, right. what you're going for. On the set, and that, yeah. You know going on, right? It's going, you know, you're going into the production knowing what you're doing. And from having sold film back in the day, I know how important it is for a cinematographer to know when to quit lighting and start shooting because this was the problem in earlier days. They were just given so much time and so much allowance that it was a, uh, an extremely high part of the budget. Uh, I, did, I had hired someone to do a shoot with Dr. Uh, Deepak Chopra uh, before he became famous. As a matter of fact, the day uh-huh. I interviewed him, he, his first book had just hit the uh, bestseller list. Uh, but it took him three days to light my living room, you know. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it because... It was a, uh, we were doing it in color, but it still took that long to get it done. But yeah. what was really important, I think, was for a cinematographer, like one of the guys told me, he said, the lights don't dim in Burbank when I hit the switch at, in the studio. He said, I have my lights set so that I can, that, that it's comfortable for the actors, and yet I get the exact look I want. And when I look around, and I see I still have shadows in the corners or something, I say, too tough, that's tough, I'm shooting, now's the time, do it. Mm-hmm. Because he mm-hmm. said, if you don't make that decision and move forward, you're wasting money. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in these days, you know, what can make cinematographers work a little bit faster is knowing that at the end of production, um, you know, end of the shoot, that they could do a digital intermediate so instead of taking maybe an extra, you know, 20 minutes to hang an additional flag, they know, okay, I can fix that in post. So don't worry, let's keep going. And it can make, you know, shoots go a little bit faster because it's a different method of, of completing a film through digital intermediate, which is much more like working in an advanced Photoshop situation where you can flag and, and you know, create traveling mats for individual little areas rather than have to color correct an entire scene. So, you know, it does facilitate a faster shooting situation. Right. But time is still of the essence on the set. So, And that's really, mm-hmm. truly, the cinematographer has a lot to do with that aspect, right? Yeah, it's, you know, the director does set, set the pace of the day. It's the director and the cinematographer working kind of in concert to keep, keep things going, you know. Um, and, you know, it's the director can say, how long does it take you to light this? this room, well, I could do this in, you know, give me half an hour. Okay, I'll be back in half an hour. So work with the actors, come back, you know. But to go, great. If you're still fussing around, then you're starting to go off your schedule, you know. So mm-hmm. these people that I've spoken with, they know what they're doing. They they work quickly. They don't, you know, keep tweaking, tweaking, tweaking. So that it's, it's, it's knowing, okay, I've got this as 
good as I want it. I like this reflection here. I think I, if I need to fix anything later or add a little highlight later, I can do it in post. Not everything can be done in post, but a few things can, just to keep time mm-hmm. and pace moving. Right. Okay. Well, tell us what makes a creative collaboration, because that seems to be the key to a successful production. It certainly is. And the first thing is, like, when I, I ask, like, what is your first meeting like with a cinematographer, you know? And um, Matthew Levitique would say, I don't come into a meeting with um, – and Matthew Levitique, of course, he works with Spike Lee and Darren Aronofsky and, and many others. He was the Academy Award nominee for Stars Born and um, the film Black Swan, which was 16, which is amazing. Um, so anyway, he comes into a meeting without any technical ideas. You know, they, they read the script. Any DP will sit down and read the script cover to cover like a book. Does the script speak to me? Can I add something to this movie? Can I, can I you know, do something I've never done before, perhaps? And then the next step is to meet with the director, and they meet with the director, and it becomes an intuitive thing, just like with anybody. Some people you connect with better than others um, to see if they share a vision. So Maddie would sit there kind of quietly without saying what his vision was and listening to what the, the director said first, you know, what they see the vision as. And then he'd say to himself, well, if we're sort of on the same page, then I know I can move forward and share my ideas. If he sees it high-key and I see it low-key, I know this is never going to work, you know. You have to kind of start that relationship. And then, you know, you're working under, like, a lot of pressure, um, long hours. You need to get along with this person because something that's going to bother you um, in a minor way in an hour is going to really become annoying in 12, you know. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you have to get along. So what Maddie likes to do, and he says what he loves so much about Darren Aronofsky in particular is that, They come from the same place. They're basically the same generation. They like the same things. They like the same music. They like to hang out together, you know. It's it's being friends as well as having a working relationship, which is why when you look at collaborations between directors and cinematographers, a lot of times you'll see the same cinematographer keep turning up. Like even with uh, Martin Scorsese, he worked with Michael Bauhaus for many years before he passed away. And now he's working with Rodrigo Prieto. He, they're on their fourth film together. Um, you have, like, his, I'm, I'm currently teaching class. I'm having a blast with It's history of cinematography. So I'm yeah. going back in time, you know, to, to collaborative teams starting from the beginning, like D.W. Griffith and Billy Bitzer, or, you know, and moving forward. So yesterday I was talking about Robert Burke and Alfred Hitchcock. And they did oh, the yeah. together. They were beautiful films. They had a wonderful friendship and working relationship, which is why Hitch was traumatized when Burks was killed in a, in a house fire. So, oh, my gosh, know, yes. It's an important relationship. And, you know, and then sometimes, like a marriage, they break up. <laughs> you know? And right. start working with somebody else, and that's okay, too. No, they do. So they all... The directors have their team, and it's not just the DP. Usually, well, when it was cameras, I mean, when it was on film, you know, there was the three of them, the loader mm-hmm. and uh, the operator and the DP, the three. And, they, and mm-hmm. when one got a job, they all got a job. They worked almost right. everything <laughs> together. I saw that in oh, the yeah. industry, and it was, uh, it was great because – 
in that in the industry at that time, it, it was feast, really feast or famine. Uh, you mm-hmm. had to get your own job, and you had to be uh, always looking for the next job. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But with so, um, uh, current collaborator, I mean, a camera, a DP will always want to bring their own crew. They they really prefer that because they're comfortable working with their own gaffer, their own operator, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes when you go to shoot in Canada and other places, that there are restrictions where you can't always do that. You know, mm-hmm. that's something that has to kind of be fought for. Um, so it, it can get tricky on the independent side when you're into lower budget. Bigger budgets, you can pretty much bring whoever, you, you know, you bring your team. That's, you hire, if a director hires a DP, they're hiring their crew as well. Yes. But going and, back and to the works. collaborations that break up, I was remembering who I was talking about. Like Oliver Stone's film, when you think about, like, the doors and um, – uh, the great stuff that he he did with Robert Richardson, you know, and then they don't work yeah. together anymore. And now Richardson is Quentin Tarantino's DP, and they just have right. a great working relationship. <laughs> well, I I like Quentin's uh, uh, love of film. I think that's fabulous because yeah, it's, he's still holding that up, and he doesn't let cell phones uh, uh, on the set. They have to leave their cell phones when they come on the set. That's great. I know. It's, and um, I just, it was worth a trip to L.A. for a lot of people to get in there. He showed uh, the Hollywood film, the last one he did. Time in Hollywood. Uh-huh. Yes, in his theater and on a projector, on a film projector. What a wonderful thing. Uh, it's just marvelous to get back in the theater like that. It's fun. Oh, yeah, definitely. And to see a film print, yes. Oh, my gosh, yes. So, Especially in um, the format they shot in. That was a large format aspect ratio, too. That They did, like, anamorphic, widescreen. It's, that's epic. That's something you do want to see on a, on a big screen in theater for sure. Yes. That's really important. Well, I have a friend, Matt Way, who is building his own studio for only 35 and 16 millimeter films to be shot in Mm. uh, Mm. down south of San Diego in that area, Intermountain Films. And a lot of people in the industry are donating equipment to him because he has something like a museum, a working museum, where you can go there and make your pictures on film because he believes so that's, that's right. still an art. Sure. I mean, that's that's my whole background was I, I learned cinematography. I learned how to use, like, a Bolex and an RAF with black and white reversible film. You know, you load the film. You know, you don't even have much exposure latitude. You better be spot on. Otherwise, it's over or under. You know, you don't see it for another day or two when you get your work print back and take a look at it and run down. I used to, like, look at it in my car, you know. Is it exposed? <laughs> okay, I see an image. That's good. And then I'd run to school, and I'd go down in the basement. I'd slap it up, I'd, uh, you know, put on the split reel and run the projector. Ah, oh, yes. It was magical. So magical. You know? Yes. And you see those images that you're not even sure you got. So for many, many, many <laughs> yes. years, I taught film as well as I shot film. I shot films that were, you know, Super 16 and blown up to 35 and projected in 35. And, you know... 
I, I became extremely comfortable shooting in that format, and then I had to stop. <laughs> and it was so sad to, to, like, see the transition and to see film labs closing and, um, you know, the whole way of making films in that sense started to shift. And then over the next 10, 12 years, which will lead me back to why I completely rewrote this book, um, it changed. Students had never touched film before. They never shot film, you know. Right. It, it became a whole different world. And I realized that, you know, I had to redo this whole book so that it, it fit that. But then I start to see this slight revival of an interest in film, but I want to shoot film, you know. I'd love to learn that. And that's, that is where I think we're going a little bit now, that younger students, you know, younger cinematographers who learn digitally are thinking, yeah, but I want to shoot film. You know, yes. I want to try film. I hope that it comes back as a special medium. Uh, I sure because hope so, too. Because it's just and... so beautiful. And I heard a cinematographer told me this once. He was explaining that the speed that a film travels through the camera is uh, important because he said your eye sees when the camera, when the claws pull the frame down to the next frame. There is one Mm -hmm. instant of a black frame, but your brain compensates. It's like a comp- a dropout compensator. Your brain acts yeah, it's immediately. Yeah, called the persistence of vision. Mm-hmm. Say that again? It's called the persistence of vision. It's persistence basically of that vision. an image is, is retained on your retina while you're blinking. It's like that intermittent movement, the way the film goes through a camera at 24 frames per second, it is the way we perceive images because, you know, part of the time your eyes are actually closed, you know, and but yes. you're looking still at the image because it's on your it's in, on your retina, and that con- becomes continuous motion. That's the whole concept of that of, on how uh, cinematography was created and what it's based on, persistence of movement. So basically, you become a co-creator in the film. You are close to the film. You really have it impregnated in your mind. And yeah. when you look at video, video uh, moves too fast, and there are no frames. So it's it, it's kind of like the old Max L sign where you're sort of blown away or just receiving, but you are not <laughs> a co-creator. So that's why films touch you more when they're shown on a film in a theater. Mm-hmm. And also there's the magic that happens the way the organic materials of film create and absorb light. You know, the way the, the emulsion absorbs the light it's an organic compound, you know, and the colors are rendered so much more, uh, they're realistic, but, but there's a softer quality to them, whereas you compare it to harder-edged uh, digital image capture, and it's, it's almost too harsh, it's too crisp. You know, you're seeing things that you don't necessarily need to be seeing, like the pore on everybody's face. And, and then you have to, cinematographers then have to create a post-process to soften the image up a little bit. You know, that's been the, the whole thing about it, when you're going from, you know, the 2K to 4K to 5K to 6K, you know, that, that's lines of resolution. You know, cinema always had, you know, 35-millimeter film the equivalent of, say, a 5K in terms of image resolution, but it was a softer version of it than 
the digital image capture at 5K. You know what I mean? It's yes, harsher and sharper that way. So the thing is when film started to, I guess it was back in like 2009, when it, 2008, 2009, before Alexa was introduced, that, you know, film started to, it was at the best it had ever been, but people were getting really interested in shooting digitally. The Red was introduced, the Alexa was introduced, and like, oh, this is where the industry is going and all of that. But Kodak had made the most beautiful line of film stocks, the Vision 3 stocks, that had ever been made. You know? Yes. Aeroflex made the best Super 16 camera that had ever been made, the 416. You know? And all of a sudden, it was sort of abandoned to move into this digital world, which has its flows for sure. Um, and it's the way the world is going now. But um, it does have some cons as well. And initially... Um, when I wrote the first version of Cinematography Directors, it was right at the precipice where, where people, the DPs were still like, eh, I don't really want to go digitally. I'd rather stay with film as much as I can. But yes, it looks like it's going away. And, and then it got sadder before it started to come back again. But somebody like Roger Deakins, for example, he loves the Alexa. He loves doing DIs and he would never go back. You know, mm. um, mm-hmm. part of it is, you know, they become comfortable with whatever they're working with, but also in the finishing process, the photochemical finishing process was a little messy compared to um, the creation of the final product now through a digital intermediate and a DCP. So, you know. Yes, that's true. You had to have a good lab. That was the key thing. Yeah, you had to have a good lab, a good color timer. You still need a good color timer, but, you know, it was so much was in the lab's hands. So much was this photochemical process. Right. We have a gentleman who donates to our film grant, uh, Sam DeLugich in California, who uh, timed, color-timed film. And Mm -hmm. he works now on on video, and he is brilliant. If you can find someone to work on your film who has had some training in film and coloring film, you have a magician. I call him the Wizard of Oz behind the camera there. <laughs> he's, he's the one that makes everything look consistent, and he sets a mood, and you feel you know, like you've just been in the cold north or been in the hot tropics. It's fabulous. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, tell me about your book now because this is the second edition. So obviously yeah. filmmakers and directors have really enjoyed your first edition. So tell us what new material you have here. Yeah, um, the first edition, as I was mentioning, it came out in uh, 2009. And, um, you know, there was some introduction. There was, of course, video cameras and there was the red and things like that. And, you know, basic concepts have remained similar, um, such as the creative collaboration aspect of it. But as I let, you know, I looked into it and I said, you know, I think I need to rewrite this book to update um, maybe formats and this and that. And so Ken and Michael were like, okay. So um, when I started to do it, I ripped the whole thing apart. <laughs> I completely <laughs> rewrote the whole book from start to finish because I was like, nah, I don't like this. Nah. So I wound up completely writing the book 100%. I was doing a lot of research on um, archival, uh, new formats. I got different images in there. Some are the same, but others are different. Um, I would say chapters on color palette. Color palette became more important and more essential a component uh, recently than it was even back then. 
Um, so I, I got more contemporary images um, to show examples of that. I spoke with more DPs, different DPs. I've spoken with over 30 uh, members of the ASC. Not all of them appear in this book. Some are in the other book, the interview book. And, you know, you really get a sense of what a cinematographer's brain works like. Um, I find that I, I can relate to them very, very well because I have the same kind of brain <laughs> with a little academia thrown in, but I think I'm coming from the same place. So um, as I was rewriting this and I was getting the information, uh, I was learning from what they were saying. I put in new quotes. So I felt pretty happy in um, the update, and um, it was much more work than I had initially intended <laughs> to do, but... Yeah, I gutted it. So, well, um, I I understand that because that's what happened to me when I did my second edition. Michael told uh-huh. me, you know, we need a new chapter and maybe you have to rewrite a few things. And I said, okay. And it was like a year later. I said, well, what are you doing? I said, I can't. I don't like this or that or this has changed. And and you get yeah. into it and you correct yourself. You, but yeah. I think that's the whole secret in this film industry is that every day, Jackie, we are learning something new. And if you don't keep up, you're dead in the water, really. That's absolutely true. And that is something I actually say to my cinematography students right now. I say, you know, I've been learning this since 1981, and I'm still learning this stuff. It never stops. You never stop Mm -hmm. learning cinematography. You never say, oh, well, I'm done. I know it all. Never. Everything is a learning process. You just keep growing and, and learning more and more and understanding more and more as well. Um, so it's an ongoing process, I think, for sure. I do, and I love it for that because you can't get comfortable in anything in this industry, particularly in distribution. This is uh, like a quagmire right now in distribution. Mm-hmm. How, are, how are independents going to get their films seen? Uh, so. It's a lot of fun, though. But what next I want to know is how you think a director, uh, how much should they know about cinematography? Right. Um, they don't have to know everything about cinematography, and there are some cinematographers who who would prefer a director um, focus on their vision and dealing with the actors and understand what they want in terms of, you know, types of compositions, so they don't have to actually say, um, let's try shooting this with a 32 mil, you know, or something like that. But um, I, I talked to the class at UCLA for a while, it was through the extension program, and it was a weekend thing called Cinematography for Directors. And in that class, um, you know, I had actors, producers, writers, people who didn't really, they weren't techies, you know. And the thing about cinematography is that, you know, a director doesn't need to know everything technical about cinematography. And lots of times they blank out and they don't want to know it. <laughs> you know? But the broad concept, I think understanding, first of all, focal length is pretty essential. Know what lenses do what. You know, if you... Uh, think back all the way to something like the way Orson Welles worked. He was no techie, but Greg Tolan, Tolan taught him what he needed to know about getting deep focus. We need to use a wide-angle lens. My f-stop needs to be closed down to, to 22 or 16, so I have the depth of field. So I think understanding focal length and depth of field is a very important um, 
technical component that translates into an aesthetic one for directors to understand. So I think Thank that's, you. That's, that's brilliant. Yes. That's um, a good beginning. <laughs> so, you know, they they should understand what they want in terms of um, movement as well. I mean, cinematographers like to watch uh, rehearsals so that they can see kind of naturally where the actors are going. And maybe a director has storyboarded it down, so they start with a master and then move into tighter shots, right? But maybe the DP sees that, you know, hey, I can cover this, you know, with just a small dolly move here. What do you think, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a suggestion a DP could throw at a director. And like, what do you think? What kind of movement do you want here? You know, when would a dolly be good versus a steady cam? So it's nice to know that difference. When maybe should we would when would a crane be awesome? When what would make that so important? Okay, let's use it coming into the film and leaving the film or something. So knowing basic types of movement is also helpful. What's available? Um, you know, lots of times, like Rodrigo Prieto told me that when he was shoot, working with um, Ang Lee on Brokeback Mountain, that they did tests of certain film stocks. Like Rodrigo would, would pre- test a certain uh, 250D versus the 200T or whatever and screen them for Ang. And Ang was very clear about what he wanted in terms of granularity for film. Or, I like this one over that one. I like this lens over that one. So some directors are more technically specific than others, but mm-hmm. having at least a clear idea of certain aspects of what you want and can communicate that to the cinematographer, it's really their job as a DP to interpret how to get that technically. Right. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't try to intimidate directors and go, oh, you need to know everything. Because many directors come out of writing. They come out of other areas, and they... They don't know it all, you know. There's a lot to know mm-hmm. about cinematography, but that's the DP's job. Hire a good DP to do it for you, but know what you want and communicate with them and make them a, an ally and a collaborator, and you'll get a good film. Yes. Well, uh, that brings us to how should a director choose a cinematographer? Is there, are there a list of questions? Or how do you make that decision? On the same sense that, you know, a, direct, a cinematographer would, you know, think about working with a director based on script and can I bring something to this, a director needs to oftentimes look at reels, look at films that other cinematographers have done and start to think about, you know, I really like the visual style of this film. Um, you know, I think maybe I'd like to work with this person. Now, some DPs, if they've shot, you know, three horror suspense films in a row, may not want to shoot another one. You know, but Mm -hmm. um, DPs can look at at other films that cinematographers have done, um, look at reels if they're independent or lower budget, look at DPs reel and see if it speaks to them visually. And then you take a Mm -hmm. meeting and see if that person connects. You you could work with them. You feel like, okay, is this somebody that I can communicate with? Is this somebody who I can share a vision with? So, you know, it's a symbiotic relationship both ways between the DP and the director and the director and the DP. So it's an intuitive thing as well. But you need to know that you can get something from the DP that will get your vision on the screen, that they understand you, you know, that they can get in your head and get it. 
You know, a, a director may right. say, you know, I'm going to play this song. What do you see? You know, what does it make you feel? You know, and if the DP is responding, like, I, I see, you know, it's a de- desaturated color palette and I, I see movement. Exactly. You know, or nope, <laughs> I see it as saturated and stagnant. You know, it's, you see if you're on the same page because there's so many different ways creatives can speak to each other and try to get that visual language uh, going smoothly. So right, director doesn't have to come and say, oh, you know, all this technical stuff. In fact, Maddie Levitica said, I don't want a director to come to me with all, you know, wanting all this technical stuff and saying, I'm going to shoot with the red and with this and this. That's not a conversation I want to have. I want to, the conversation I want to have is what's the theme of this film, you know, and how can we underscore that theme visually and represent it on the screen through its own visual storytelling language. So wow, it, that, that's that very clear, isn't it? That's great. <laughs> well, um, one of the main statements from the cinematographers in your book was that mm-hmm. they wanted their directors prepared. And I see you have a yeah. section saying what a director can do to prepare, so share that with us. Now, let me find that. <laughs> <laughs> what a director can do to prepare. Uh, let's see. Yes. Now, the director would basically be um, knowing what they want from their film. What kind of film am I making, genre-wise? You know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. let's, let's be on the same page, because that's one of the first things you come to is, what genre? You know, you can't have a comedy be chiaroscuro lighting. It just doesn't work, you know. Um, so I think a director should know about lenses, and I, as I mentioned, um, because there's such a storytelling tool, you know, what a long lens gives you versus what a wide angle gives you, you know. Do we just, just want to focus on the actors? I just want to see the actor's face. I just want to see into their eyes. Well, that's a longer lens. Let's, let's shoot it with an 85 or something. Um, the wide angle will put the actor into their environment. So if you look at, you know, a Wes Anderson film, they use a lot of wide-angle lenses there. Um, that's a style. That's, that's the director's vision. So, of course, a director having a vision is key. They, they wrote the script or they're interpreting the script. They need to be able to see it in their own mind's eye, uh, cut together, knowing what they want. They may have a few little holes here and there that they can ask for, you know, how do you think I should cover this to the DP? But basically it's their vision. Um, as I mentioned, they should know depth of field. They should know some basic exposure about, you know, I can't get deep focus if we're shooting completely in the dark, lit by candlelit at f1.4. It's it's just you don't have deep focus in that environment. <laughs> it's not going to happen. So understanding what can be in focus and what can't be in focus. Um, and you know, directors do call shots. It's like they would know they they need to know when they want a medium shot versus a close up. You know. That's storytelling, you know. Um, there's a documentary that just came into my head called Visions of, uh, Visions of Light, which I show a lot to my students. And there's a story that Bill Fraker, who is the cinematographer of Rosemary's Baby, says about Roman Polanski. And um, there's this whole thing about the shot where she reaches in to make a phone call. You know, Roman told Bill Fraker, you set it up, you know, so I can see the, the phone. And she's sitting there, and Bill Fraker says, oh, okay. He goes, so I, I create this shot where she's sitting there and we see her reach over to the phone and Roman like, no, 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 this way, this way, this way. So basically they push it all the way so that Mia Farrow's character is cut off. So you see just her back leaning towards the phone. 
And that was the composition in Roman Polanski's head for that particular shot, which, of course, causes a bit of, of tension in the viewer because they can't see her. So Bill Fraker is like, okay. So he sets it up, shoots it that way. And then in the theater, Bill Fraker, he was saying how the whole audience, like, leans to the left to try to peer around the corner <laughs> to see this character, you know, on the phone. And he said that was Roman Polanski. So I think what, what a director should have is a vision. And, and know what they're saying and understanding their storytelling because they will call compositions. They will call specific shots. Um, they will say, I want, you know, I want a wide shot. Okay. How wide? I want a medium shot, you know, from waist up. And maybe a director will go, you know, not nah, like shoulder, chest, head. Okay. Or Donald Peter said, well, I'll just give him a haircut. So that's a tighter shot. So <laughs> you're cutting the top of the head, you know, um, uh-huh. Donald Petrie was very funny to talk to. He said he came on set one day just wearing a, um, the cardboard from a toilet paper roll around his neck as a director's viewfinder because, you know, what he wanted was somebody who could bring something to the party. He wanted somebody that was going to be fun to work with, you know, that wouldn't take him too seriously and still so he could get what he needed, you know. Oh, that's great. His congeniality and grumpy old men. <laughs> Oh, okay. Well, let's go to storyboards uh, and directors yes. who like to storyboard like Hitchcock did. Yes. Well, you know, there are directors who work meticulously with storyboards so that, you know, like Hitchcock, going through the filming was just the process. You know, in his mind, the storyboard was the film that he wanted shot pretty close to what it was. And if he had an extreme close-up as in notorious on a cup of tea, that was the most important thing in the shot at that moment. And that's the way it needed to be photographed because what you find out later is that the tea is poisoning her, right? So um, certain directors have a very clear vision and they'll share the storyboards with the cinematographer um, and that's what they want. Others are less tied to the storyboards. They do it for their own preparation. And they're like, okay, well, I have these in case I kind of go off, but we'll use these as a springboard. And, you know, basically I want to start with this, but if you see something else, we'll grab that too. DPs love that. Some cinematographers will actually work with the director to storyboard and like to kind of share in that process of coming up with the visual language of the film through the storyboards. So, and some don't storyboard at all. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, it's not etched in stone that you have to do a certain thing, and, you know, but some are more specific about it than others. And I think that for a cinematographer, they need to know that, you know, I can work this way, having these very rigid storyboards, um, because storyboards are, are really just a reference. They can't, they're not based on a real focal length, you know. Um, they may be coming up with software now that's closer to approximating what a certain lens would do, but basically they're just an idea. You know, I'm thinking of putting it together this way, but the focal length will see things a little differently than a drawing on a piece of paper, you know? Right. So it, it, there's a lot of opinions about storyboards. Some love it, some well, hate it, it some are They do. Well, what, we, what we're talking about here is that the writer, we haven't even mentioned the writer, so I guess the deal is the writer uh, gives the vision to the director in his notes or in conversations mm-hmm. with the director, so then the director has all of that with him to discuss with the DP. 
because you don't find too many. Well, assuming it's not a writer-director, assuming it's a director who has worked with the writer, but the writers, mm-hmm. uh, are they on the set these days? How much attention is paid to the writer? Not in terms of um, specifically calling shots that I'm aware of. That's the director's uh-huh. job um, in concert with the DP. But um, writers are invited as a, as a courtesy and perhaps to, you know, have additional input on set. But really the director, whether they're a director for hire, like they're, they're given the script to put their pass on it, their interpretation of how they see it. So it may be just a little bit different than the way it was written, you know, initially from the writer. Um, the only way it's going to be closer to the way it was written is going to be the writer directing it themselves. And uh, one cinematographer I spoke with, he's, he's been, you know, he's been working a long time, John Bailey. He actually likes to work with young writer directors because, you know, they are the originators of the material, you know. So they sat there and wrote it, so they have the vision in their head. And it's sometimes a little easier to pull that out. Whereas the director given a script has to then put their, they have to understand it, interpret it, and then put their spin on it. Right. So, uh, yeah. That's a good uh, answer. Thank you very much. Okay. If chapter five is brilliant. It's all about the color palette of the film. Uh, and I don't understand, but this seems to be one of the most powerful storytelling devices that the cinematographer uses, right? The color yeah. palette? Yeah, absolutely. Because we are so emotionally affected by color. And, you know, we're watching color films, brilliantly beautiful color films these days, that when you think about films um, back in the 50s and stuff, they, they had the only people I could really think of using color palette was like the melodramas of Douglas, Douglas Sirk and Russell Meddy because they used color coding so brilliantly to tell the story. But now color is a conversation that's had in pre-production. So, okay, I see the color palette in this particular scenario um, for this character to be slightly desaturated because their world is, is kind of grim where this color character's color is more saturated and, and the memory they share together is golden. So you're talking in colors. So in, in creating some sort of lookbook, those colors would be a part of that process. You know, how do you see this film looking? Is it deeply saturated? Is it desaturated? Is it a combination of things? Are we using complementary colors? I mean, you know, what colors are going to be the predominant thing here? Is it going to be a theme of red dripping through the whole thing as in American Beauty? You know, you start with the theme of of roses, the house has a red door, you know, um, but then it it ends with Lester's blood on the table. So red is a predominant theme of a color throughout. You know, imagine Rebel Without a Cause without a red jacket. <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> um, so then you look at films like, you know, the sci-fi films that are coming out that are desaturated because the world you go into the future you know, they, they're darker. They could be, you could be anything you want. It could be green. It can be blue. It can be orange. We're on Mars. It's orange, of course, you know. Um, yes. You look at the Harry Potter series, the way the films developed in terms of their color palette. They started off kind of light and, and evenly toned and, and just, you know, more palpable for a child. And they got dark. They got quite dark, you know. Yes, um, yes. So the tone shifted. So color affects us on an emotional level. Um, 
and and it affects the viewer into kind of cueing you into things are a little weird here, this is not normal, or to feel comfortable in this warm environment because it's bathed in this golden light more in this kind of hyper-reality of dream in the past, in nostalgia, you know. Um, I think that color today is the most powerful way that a, a director and cinematographer can communicate, one of the most powerful ways, to an audience. And I had a lot of fun with Chapter 5 because there's so many great stills that you pull from things. Like I mentioned, um, of course, Blade Runner 2049, photographed by Roger Deakins, has an amazing futuristic world with a very distinct color palette throughout. You know, the opening sequence of something even back from 79 in Apocalypse Now, which was photographed by the brilliant Vittorio Storaro, you know, that sets the tone so much of what is going on subjectively inside his mind right in the opening sequence. We know this guy is ravaged by war. He's damaged. And the film throughout has a rich color, but um, it's also very chiaroscuro. You know, it's very contrasty rich color. And then you've got the work that, um, you know, Spielberg does with Janusz Kaminski. They very often have a, a distinctly desaturated or monochromatic color palette. So this is a conversation that could be a lot of fun between a director and a DP and even a production designer should be in on this as well um, and coming up with what the scheme, the color scheme will be, you know. You know, we see red as, or orange. You look at the film like Her, orange seems to be the predominant color of love in that particular film. Um, mm-hmm. So there's so many different ways you can go with it, but, you know, you, you really can look at films today and you can see each character perhaps having a different color palette, a, a monochromatic color palette throughout, complementary colors delineating two different storylines as an English patient. You know, the past is, is amber. The present that they're in is more bleak and blue-gray. Um, the owls yes. had three distinctly different color palettes, you know. Uh, they had tobacco filter brownish for Virginia Woolf's character. They had a more yellowish feel for Julianne Moore's character. They had a bluish kind of winter feel for Meryl Streep's character. Three distinctly but subtle color palettes interwoven. Some color palettes are much more blatant, like in traffic, very blatant. You know, you've got blue for the Ohio part with Michael Douglas and you've got sepia and brown for the part with um, uh, in Mexico. So it's like, you know, there's so many different ways you can go. So that's a conversation that is had now very early on. Very early on, right. Oh, this is marvelous. Um, (laughs) I want to know, because we're almost out of time, I've got one more question, but tell me what you think about Fisher shooting Mank on black and white. Well, I mean, that's a black and white time period. You know what I mean? <laughs> yes, it is. About the but that takes a lot of, of guts. Kane, you know, um, it, it's to go back to black and white now really makes it stand out in this world of color as its own stylistic device. And in the same way that, say, Super 16 is being used for the creation of a nostalgia film from the 70s, shooting black, Mank in black and white, of course, is going back to the time when they were making films in the 1940s in beautiful and rich black and white and the brilliance that became of Citizen Kane and the cinematography of Greg Toland in that film. So it couldn't mm-hmm. have been in anything but black and white to me. <laughs> so I think I'm on the same page as David Fincher with that one. 
Yes, uh, me too, but I just wonder how the rest of the world is taking it. Um, I, it fits, it works, and the lighting was stupendous in that film. Uh-huh. Yeah, well, they have to kind of echo what perhaps Greg Toland did with Citizen Kane, you know, it's to try and get there and, and make it be something that's real, you know, from that time period. You know, it's, it's yeah, it's, I love that film. I had a great time with it because I, I think stuff goes in my head all the time. But I, don't, I wonder how, you know, people who don't know about Citizen King, I guess they just take it as what it is. But um, it's nominated for Academy, so I guess it, they're doing the right thing. Yes, it is. I was so happy to see that. Um, okay, so the last question is the formats, various formats and the canvases. Yes. Uh, this is a collaboration between the director and the cinematographer to bring this story through the camera movement, lighting and blocking. So if you can explain in detail how important it is when deciding what format you want to shoot on. Yeah, it's, you know, it's important to say, like, you know, when do you need uh, an aspect ratio that's truly widescreen to tell a story, a 240 widescreen aspect ratio format versus a 185 versus you know, a 166, uh, you know, it's how big is your canvas? If your film is only going to be watched on an iPhone, it, it doesn't need to be shot in a widescreen aspect ratio because it doesn't need to be. You know, you're, that's your canvas, looking through the viewfinder. That's your framing. That's where all the blocking and movement is going to happen. How big of a space do you need? Um, very often that's a conversation a director and cinematographer will have because, I know Maddie Levitik talked about how Darren Aronofsky loves Super 16. He just loves that format. He loves working, you know, with that kind of grittyish feel Super 16 can give, maybe in a 185 or taking a smaller aspect of the 166 aspect ratio and blowing it up to 240 so it really kicks up the grain as he did in The Wrestler. But um, that's the conversation, you know, that sometimes a cinematographer will want to convince a director, like, I'd really rather go to a 235 on this to make it a little bit bigger and give it some room to breathe rather than a 185 smaller, and they'll show what the different versions of that can be. And this is either film or digital because it depends on, you know, the viewfinder you use and, and what you're choosing to compose your your canvas on, you know, what how size, what's the size going to be, where is it going to be filmed and shown in a big theater or just on a TV screen. Um, so some directors are really locked into, no, I, I don't want to shoot 240, it's too big, I can't think about how I'm going to compose something that wide, um, so let's go with 185, this is an actor's, this is a more intimate type of production, so let's stay smaller. You know, and John Bailey, I know he, he talked a lot about this, he said how he convinced many directors to try and go to a larger, if I can do this rom-coms in a widescreen aspect ratio, I promise you it'll work. You know, and some people just feel, some directors may feel 185 is too small. It's too big. They'd rather be in 185 because it's more comfortable for them than to go to 240. Mm-hmm. What do I do with all that space? You know? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> wow, there's so, so many decisions to be made. It's incredible, isn't it? It's incredible. It yeah, never gets sure. made in the first place, <laughs> right? I know. Well, I know tell that. us... Uh, we need to to get the name of the book in there again. I'm so sorry I got so involved with all the questions. Cinematography yeah. for Directors, Jacqueline Frost. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for all the information. Uh, I can understand why you teach this. You know it like the back of your hand. 
<laughs> yeah, I guess I do. <laughs> it's been a while. You do, Jack, and it's so good to hear this from a woman. This is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking uh, to you, and and I love that you tapped into that part of my brain. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, I'm sure we'll have a lot of questions for you from the uh, viewers and the listeners, and so thank you very much for not only for this lovely interview, but what you're doing on a daily basis to teach and encourage filmmaking at a high level. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, Jackie, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. Best of luck. Bye-bye. Claire, thank you. Okay, bye. Take care, everyone. Okay, bye. I want to remind our listeners that David Raiklin is a brilliant and talented award-winning musician who scores films and can compose music for a trio or for a full orchestra. David is a very good friend to the independent filmmaker and comes highly recommended by From the Heart Productions. If you need music to help tell your story, please contact him at davidraiklin.com. That's David, R-A-I-K-L-E-N, dot com. And Carol and I want to thank you for tuning in to the Art of Film Funding. Please visit our website at fromtheheartproductions.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Good luck with your films, everyone. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.